everyone and welcome to another exciting episode of battle of the atom this is the weekly x-men podcast where we normally rank every x-men story from a to z i'm adam and i'm zach and adam do you know what i got in the mail today (laughs) well (laughs) i had heard that you were getting like some kind of cursed delivery of some kind (laughs) so do you want to tell everybody what you got because it's i I find it quite frightening (laughs) I do. I do. A friend of the show, Thomas Cummins, uh, said on Twitter that he was sending me something that was going to, quote, change my life forever. And I didn't know what he meant. And I was terrified. And I was right to do that because he sends me this big old package. It's heavy. And in it are three custom bound versions Of the entirety of the 1994 to 2001 run of (laughs) X-Man. That he got (laughs) specifically made. And I am cursed to read this comic book about the other cable. Mm. Well, at least it's bound. It's going to be a beautiful presentation for you, buddy. Oh, they are. They are gorgeous. (laughs) I am, I'm so excited to uh, read this, but do you know what else I'm excited about, Adam? Well, I, I think, folks, you can probably hear that we have a guest today. We do have a guest today coming to us live from the internet. Uh, she is the writer of X-Men Gold Annual Number 2, the upcoming X-Men Black Mystique, uh, the Encrypted series, and so much more. It is Shannon McGuire. I just forgot your last name, and I am so sorry. I just blanked as I was you saying said that. my last name, McGuire. You said it. Well, <laughs> I forgot that it was your last name as I said it. Guys, this That's is Shannon. Amazing. <laughs> oh, I good. Oh my gosh, Shannon, how are you doing tonight? I'm delighted that you forgot my last name. Like people forget my first name all the time or they get really weird with it. So having McGuire be the thing someone messes up is, is sort of magical. Yeah, I'm I'm only like three quarters Scottish. And by that, I mean, oh. as three quarters, anything as anyone in America is. So I feel like the mix I should be able to get real good. You should, you should, but still it's like opening a blind box and what's inside? Is it wasps? No, it's something cool and (laughs) non-fatal. Well, well, hopefully this interview is not a blind box uh, full of wasps. That would be, that would be terrible, but no, this is good. Uh, Shannon. Yeah. It's, it's great to have you on now for the folks who may only know you from the X-Men stuff that you've got going on up. What else do you do? So I am an internationally best-selling novelist. Uh, My first book came out in 2009. It was the start of the October Day series. It's called Rosemary and Rue. And since then, I have published through entirely traditional publishing channels, because I don't sleep, 43 books. Um, That's that's a lot. Yeah, it is. I was a little horrified when I actually counted it up. Um, It helps that I am actually two people. I write as both myself and as Mira Grant. Uh, when I'm writing as Sean and McGuire, I mostly do urban fantasy and modern fantasy and superhero fiction. 
And when I'm writing as Mira Grant, I do biomedical science fiction thrillers. So it's sort of like Michael Creighton, uh, but without the plagiarism, sexism, or anti-science bias. Um, <laughs> and last year, my book, Every Heart a Doorway, won a genuinely horrifying number of major awards. So that was super fun for me. Um, it actually was a little bit nerve wracking, but but super fun. And literally my entire career, uh, when you're a traditional novelist, you'll usually have an agent and it's their job to go to publishers and to try to get you the career you say you want to have. And so a good agent will sit you down after they sign you and say, hey, what do you want? What do you hope your career will be? And that's partially so if you say, I want to be as famous as J.K. Rowling, they can say, okay, that's not going to happen, <laughs> but I could get you a pony. And so my agent sat me down for that talk and said, what do you want? And I said, I want to write the X-Men. And you could see the blue screen in her eyes because she had no frame of reference for that response. Yeah. Just, you want to what? I want to be famous enough that when I say I want to write the X-Men, they'll let me. <laughs> Just approach Marvel directly? Yes, but I've tried that and I'm a lady and it's hard. So I would like to publish a lot of books and win a lot of awards. So they'll let me write the X-Men. And apparently this 10-year career path has paid off. Wow. So was that like an honest to God, like day one goal before you even published oh, yeah. your first book? That's been my goal since I was seven years old. So... Oh my God, I love it. <laughs> so with that being a literal lifelong dream. What's your, what's your X-Men backstory? How did you, how did this become such a core thing for you? Uh, so I grew up super, super, super poor in the California Bay area. Like the poverty line was something that was kind of aspirational to my family. Um, and this is mostly relevant uh, because as a smart kid who loved to read, whose family had no money, I was, pretty much limited to things that were 10 years too old for me uh, because that's what was showing up at the yard sales and the library book sales and in the 25 cent box at my local comic book store. Uh, so my mom came home with a couple of old long boxes of comics from yard sales. She paid $5 for a giant box of old Warren comics, creepy and eerie and vampirella. Uh, I know, right? That's cool. Uh, and just <laughs> random superhero issues. Meanwhile, a comic book store had opened right up the street from my Aunt Debbie's, Flying Colors, Comics, and Other Cool Stuff in Concord, California. And uh, the owner of that store, lucky for me, was Joe Field, who had three daughters and had seen them be not exactly welcome in other comic book stores. Mm -hmm. So he had a policy that was at that time unique in the Bay Area, where it's not kids are banned without an adult, it's kids are treated as individuals. And if they are polite and don't rip things or make a mess, we let them come in. And there was a quarter box of old issues. So I would save every penny I could find. I would save my nickels and my dimes. And sometimes I would have as much as $2 when it came time to go to the comic book store. And then I would go in and spend literally hours at the quarter boxes, picking out the comics that I wanted to read. And Joe in addition to being, you know, a good guy and a good father, is also a good businessman. And he looked at that and went, this is a long-term investment. If I can get this kid, who is clearly motivated to be a part of the comics world, really invested in them, she is going to spend every dollar she has at my store till she's <laughs> dead. <laughs> and so when I started sort of shifting into areas of specification, 
Um, you know, I dropped DC uh, because DC was not, it did not feel as welcoming to me as a 10 year old girl as Marvel did and uh, sort of focused for a while on X-Men and Spider-Man. And then one day he saw me walk out with the issue where Gwen Stacy dies and went, okay, so next week she's only going to want X-Men. Um, <laughs> and uh, started, he would literally slip slightly more expensive, like not, not $30 issues, but this, this issue would be a $2 issue, not a quarter issue. He'd literally slip slightly newer issues of X-Men into the box when he saw me coming. And that kindness also really focused things and meant that I learned enough about the X-Men that that became home. They had already been super appealing, but the more I knew, the more I wanted to know. Uh, until when I was 12 and had really settled on this obsessive idea that someday I was going to be a writer. Uh, when I was 12, I told Joe, when I grow up, I'm going to write the X-Men and you're going to let me have my first signing here in the store. <laughs> And uh, the bastard held me to it. So <laughs> I don't even live in that state anymore. I had to fly back to California for my first comic book signing. That is uh, so cool. I love yeah. that. That's fantastic. Now, now jumping to uh, something you had just mentioned, and I, I forgot to say this in the introduction, and that's on me, but you're not just writing a couple of X-Men stuff. You actually have Spider-Gwen Ghost Spider coming out uh, uh -huh. coming out soon. Is it odd going from, you know, the death of Gwen Stacy kind of taking you away from Spider-Man to her now becoming this unique, rich character bringing you to actually writing Spider-Man? It, it kind of feels like an apology from the universe. Like, <laughs> I'm so sorry that you cried for like six hours when you were 10, but here you go. She's okay. You can make it better now. Um, the return of Gwen Stacy, like the creation of, of the Spider-Woman Gwen Stacy character in 2014, really was such a huge moment for a lot of people. Um, and not, not just female fans of the characters, but, you know, Gwen Stacy's death for a lot of us was very traumatic. And she's one of those characters who had always felt like she died because Peter needed more tragedy not because mm -hmm. she mm -hmm. had done something, not because she had made a choice in her life. Um, really, she died because, you know, Mary Jane was more popular, but that is beside the point. So having her come back really did feel like an apology to all of us. Here you go. We're so sorry. We messed up a little bit, but it's better now. And uh, I, I never thought I'd have the chance to write her. I didn't think that it would even be polite of me to try. Uh, because I had been so public about just wanting the X-Men and it would feel a little bit, I don't know, grubby if I suddenly started going, hey, yeah, Jason Latour and Robbie Rodriguez are amazing and they created this character, but you should give her to me. <laughs> like, that's just, that's the right thing to do. Uh, because it wouldn't have been. They did a magical job. I love their run. Um, oh, it's it's fantastic. I've, I, I picked up Edge of Spider-Verse 2 on a whim when it came out because I was like, Okay, this cover is pretty cool. I like this design. And that character has stuck out to me as, you know, someone who you know, loved the indie punk rock, uh, you know, aesthetic to her and just all of the heart that they have put into that series and that universe. It's been they great. They are a hard act to follow. Yeah. I, I mean, look, you've obviously got your stuff together, but 
it's actually really interesting trying to follow up something that comes from such a singular vision, mm -hmm. you know, where the X-Men, there's thousands of interpretations of them, some good, some bad, a lot in between. But with right. Spider-Gwen, it's been like two guys, two guys in Rico killing it on colors. Right. What's, what's your mindset following that up? My mindset is that you couldn't have Spider-Gwen. You, you just couldn't, no matter how genius Jason and Robbie are, you couldn't have Spider-Gwen if you hadn't had Gwen Stacy to begin with. Mm -hmm. And I love and understand Gwen Stacy. I really, truly do. I love Earth-65. I love what they've done there. And one of the beautiful things about any of these superhero comics to me, like the, the difference between the X-Men and something like, I don't know, David Willis's It's Walkie, which is also genius and totally worth reading, is that you know from the moment you start out that you are not going to be the only one that makes choices about these characters. Mm -hmm. I, I think that, I don't know, most people are wrong about Emma Frost. I really do. No, I do. I'm, I most of them. Well, I here, think the the problem is I think I'd I'd like to hear more about that in a minute because I think that could go in two very different directions. Oh, it really could. <laughs> um, I think that most people are not necessarily wrong, but are very very divided on say prestige. You know, is your interpretation of Shadowcat more right than mine? Um, if it's just my character and in my books, it's just my character, then my interpretation is right. Just mm -hmm. that's it's nice that you don't agree with me, but uh, whose name's on the cover <laughs> with with anything published by one of the big comic companies and especially Marvel, um, you know, every second of the day that you are part of this interactive collaborative system. And so to me, it feels like I am being given the singular honor. It's a challenge, but it's also singular honor of proving that Ghost Spider is not just a great idea in the hands of the people who came up with her, but is a great idea as part of the greater Marvel universe. And she's going to be able to endure and she's going to be able to last just as long as Jessica Drew or Peter Parker or any of these other characters. Without Jason and Robbie, we wouldn't have her to test this on, but it's my job to prove that she has legs. And that is what I'm going to do because she's awesome and I'm having a good time. And I want them <laughs> to give me a mainline X book. And part of how I do that is by showing how awesome I am. That's a great idea. I like that. Do you think that that's the biggest challenge um, in shifting from writing prose to what it is that you're doing uh, when you sit down to write scripts for, you know, artists on comic work, or, or are there other challenges that you're finding from switching from uh, one format to the other? I was super fortunate in that this is not actually my first comics work. Okay. Um, I did a creator owned comic called the best thing with Thrillment comics, which is John Rogers and Mark Wade's comic company. And uh, the, the trade of that should be coming out sometime in the next year. Uh, so people will actually be able to read it, but nice. The biggest challenge is as a novelist, it is my job to make sure you know what's going on. I have to describe everything. And if I leave something out, 
people may get mad if I try to use it later on. Uh, mm -hmm. Doing comics, you know, you write panels. You go page one, panel one, interior Kitty Pride's bedroom. Um, and so what does that look like to me? What's it going to look like to the artist? What is important enough to me that I'm going to risk irritating my artist by specifying it in that very first <laughs> panel? Because it has yeah. to be a collaboration. My artist has to have the room to not only breathe and feel like they have a stake in this, but to show their best work. Because I'm not only responsible for making myself look cool, I'm responsible for giving my artist the opportunity to look cool. And to a, a slightly lesser degree, but not that much, I'm responsible for giving my colorist opportunities to show why they have this job. I shouldn't just set everything in a sterile white room unless mm -hmm. that is specifically the point of the issue. Um, so, you know, for, for X-Men Gold Annual Number 1, uh, if you take a look at the first panel there, which is Kitty Pride's bedroom, I specified that we should have the Mashusha by the door because that is a, a very traditional thing in Jewish households that you have the scroll by the door um, and that there should be a picture of Doug Ramsey on Kitty's mm -hmm. desk. Everything else was like, here's the situation. You can tell from the dialogue what's happening. You're my artist. Make it look awesome. Um, and it can be hard to not overwrite. And I think half of what I do is going back and editing out my own panel descriptions. Like, gosh, Shannon, you sure think you're cool and that your words should be there, <laughs> but they shouldn't. They shouldn't. Yeah, it's definitely a, probably a different uh, self-editing process to go mm -hmm. through, you know, from, from writing every single detail into something that's got to be a little less descriptive for your artists. Um, I, I thought the annual was really great. Um, I you. think that it's probably couched in a really interesting fan conversation right now, given the ending of, um, you know, the wedding of the century, which turned out to be... Uh, what I think is a, a great idea for story, which is uh, Rogan Gambit getting together for Mrs. Mr. and Mr. Mm -hmm. and Mrs. X. Um, but I think that fans are starting to really start to become bigger in the, you know, a bigger part of the conversation in terms of what they want out of Kitty. Um, right. So I, I'm kind of curious editorially um, and then maybe from a fan perspective um what what were some of the expectations of this particular annual and what you were being expected to do with this story and then do you also think that there was some pressure from you know the public in terms of what their expectations might have been so um i'm going to be very cagey here because i'm still learning the limits of my ndas and i don't mm -hmm. want marvel to not give me more work um, sure you know I, I as i keep telling people the only way that you get them to give me more freedom is by showing that you'll show up if I'm on the cover. Mm -hmm. uh, editorially, I was literally, they, they contacted me out of the blue, uh, though I suppose that my multi-year campaign to get them to hire me <laughs> makes it not quite so much out of the blue as just giving in. Yeah. Um, I feel like the jerk boyfriend in a romantic comedy. You know, hey, are you ready to go out with me yet? Are you ready to go out with me yet? Are you ready to go out with me yet? So don't do that in real life, but maybe it works on comic companies. Um, so they contacted me out of the blue and said, hey, do you want to write an X-Men comic? And I was like, um, I can't breathe. There's literally no air left in my house and I can't speak. I'm just making dolphin noises. But sure, I would like that very much. Um, obviously, you're not supposed to talk about that. Equally, obviously, I called my brother immediately. Um 
and just literally was making these high-pitched squeaking noise that only bats could hear as he's going, <laughs> okay, okay, you can't speak. Something has happened. It's either really good or really bad. This doesn't sound like the unhappy bat noises. Did they give you the X-Men? Um, because my brother has met me ever. And um, they uh, they had already approved the story concept of Kitty Pride goes to camp and has her first kiss, which she has never told the X-Men about. Mm. So I knew the time period I was in. I knew the basic shell of the story and everything else was up to me. Um, what I'll usually do in a situation like that is run a Punnett square. You might remember those from high school biology. Yeah. Uh, what are the possible results if you breed a white pea pl plant with a red pea plant? So I'll set up four potential options and ways that the story can go that still hits all the beats. Uh, they chose the square off of my punnet that they wanted, and I gave them a more elaborate pitch and went along with it. Uh, the only part I was honestly unhappy with was that when you're setting up the advertising for the issue, and this was coming on the heels of the wedding of the century and all of that, um, you can't say everything you want to say. You have to be very careful. So the first press release was like the romantic story of Kitty's first kiss at camp. And I'm like, I am this romantic? Really? <laughs> uh, there's, a, there's a story I love to tell because I think it's funny. I'm a big fan of the Counting Crows, mm -hmm. oh, uh, which yeah. is a band. Um, mm -hmm. My PA calls them the music of my pain. Uh, they, are, they are very depressing people. And they wrote the opening song for Shrek 2 uh, because someone <laughs> yeah. on the film's crew was a big fan. And so they called Adam Duretz, who is the lead singer and, and main composer for The Counting Crows, and were like, hey, we love your work. We want you to write this peppy, upbeat, romantic song to open Shrek 2. And he was like, I think you have the wrong number. <laughs> that's not what I do. Um, and that's kind of how I felt when all the news sites started saying, it's the romantic first story. I'm like, oh, my dudes. Oh, mm -hmm. no, you are going to be really disappointed if you read this expecting a real romance. It's it's a summer fling. There's some hormones. There's some panic. There's a lot of screaming. Uh, there is no blood, which is the only thing that makes it not quite on brand for me. But I am <laughs> I am not... I'm not romantic. That's not what I do. Uh, uh, but people have liked it, which is good. Um, despite that, I, I don't like false advertising, even when it's accidental. I was very concerned about that. Um, I did have some people express what they hoped would happen mm -hmm. uh, in the annual. And honestly, I, I can't disagree with them um, for that hope. Although... I will say that I would have been uncomfortable um, if everyone who, who was saying what they wanted got what they wanted. I would have been uncomfortable because we had that not just editorial mandate, but canonical mandate, because this was set so far back in the in the continuity of why is this the kiss you didn't talk about, Kitty? Why is why is this the kiss you kept a secret? Um, so I kind of like that it went where it went just because. It would have made me uncomfortable as who I am if I felt like a different kind of kiss had to be kept completely under wraps mm -hmm. for 20 years. I, I think that's yeah. 
that's a very interesting perspective, especially for, you know, me, I, you know, I ran the press release that Marvel sent out. I'm actually looking at it right now. And it's very, you know, it, it combined with some initial, you know, theories and apprehensions about that wedding had, and, you know, the larger discussion of Kitty pride, it had a lot of people going in a lot of different directions on, you know, what's going to happen and what is, but, I think you make a very valid point about, you know, if it, if it would have gone in a direction, I'll just, I'll be blunt because I don't have any NDAs with Marvel. Uh, but if it would have, if it would have changed something about uh, Kitty's canonical sexuality or something like that, or added a new facet to that, mm-hmm. I I can definitely understand how there's, there's some, a lot, a lot of difficulty with that being some secret thing that, you know, has been 20 years in the past right. and all that. Yeah. There's that, that's an aspect of this that I don't think I, I thought through. And I don't think a lot of fans had. I, I think we, I just want to be a little bit more maybe direct about the, the thing. Cause I feel like Sean and you're bringing like a really, really, you know, smart and thoughtful perspective on this. Um, you know, I've heard interviews with, Claremont in which he specifically says that he believes that Kitty is queer. Oh, Kitty's Um, Kitty's totally queer. Kitty is okay. As far as I'm concerned, canonically, and please keep in mind that my beliefs as both a creator and a fan don't matter if editorial doesn't want to go in that direction. That's a good point. Um, Yeah. But I believe canonically Kitty is, and has always been super queer it's only the comics code that kept her from having a much more open and on the page relationship with definitely Ilyana, pop mm-hmm. Rachel. It frustrates me a little bit as a fan. I'm going to separate from, from my working for Marvel right now and just say as, as a fan of these characters, my whole life that Claremont, you know, we hold up as he's the dude, he's the Stan Lee of the X-Men. He's the guy that, that made this all possible and created all this. And his word is law except when he says over and over and over again that he and many of the artists he worked with went out of their way to present as much of a healthy same-sex relationship with Kitty as the comics code of the day would allow. Like, I'm not... I would have problems with suddenly saying that Jean Grey is queer. She's never shown any tendencies toward that before. Um, ironically Emma Frost has been allowed to be presented as bisexual um, Mm -hmm. although we have not seen her in an active relationship with a woman but but not so much Jean Um, but with Kitty I don't understand why this is a conversation her creators have said if it weren't for the time that this was happening in this is how it would have been her fans have said this was so important to me like X-Men has a lot of queer fans because X-Men has gone out of its way to court queer fans. That's that's not me projecting. That's literally how the, the franchise has worked. X-Men has a lot of queer fans and pretty much all of them have been saying for a very long time, Kitty Pride is one of us. You wrote her that way. You handed her to th- us that way. And now when we say we'd like to actually see her that way, you say it's changing something. Um, I feel like refusing to let Kitty be bi is changing something. Now, I think that biphobia maybe feeds a little bit into that. You Mm -hmm. know, so often when 
a fictional character is allowed to have a coming out story, is allowed to express a sexuality other than heterosexual, uh, they go from one option to the next. You were straight, now you're gay. Right. I really enjoy having a queer Bobby running around, but as a bisexual woman, it actually bothered me a little bit that we had the whole scene with Jean going, oh no, Bobby, you're full gay. You're, you're 100% mm. gay. Like, really? That's... I have a lot of canon that says maybe not that. And also, now you're... I love Emma Frost. She's my girl. She is my favorite of the ex-ladies for a lot of, I think, very good reasons. But I know that you prefer when she doesn't look, you know, less awful than Jean. That's a thing with you, editorial. And you do realize that by having... Emma not out Bobby for years because she took his body for a little while. You've kind of made Jean a little bit. Okay, I give up. <laughs> I like that you're thinking about this in that level of depth because um, I I don't know. I'm of the opinion that I think that, you know, at some point it's inevitable. Oh, I that- agree. The writers, whoever it is, whether it's, you know, whether this is something that's coming soon or whether this is something that will be down the line because these characters are, you know, they're endlessly serialized um, that that Kitty will, you know, eventually. And I realize we're we're speaking the same language here that we both believe that it's canonical, that um, that she's queer in some way. But yeah, (laughs) as the the wonderful T-shirt says, Um, I think it. It, it doesn't, you don't get points for representation when you never put it on the page. Mm-hmm. And I yeah. think it is telling that the people who are most likely to say, well, you have one, you have one gay character. Now you've got, we gave you an old one that we made gay. So they've been here all along <laughs> are most frequently the people that can see themselves everywhere. Mm-hmm. You know, I mentioned earlier that DC just didn't feel as friendly to me as a little girl. Um, and that's in part because unless Wonder Woman is your girl, at that time, DC really didn't offer a lot of entry points for female fans. Sure. Um, and Marvel did. I mean, on that note, I was just today, my son, I, I say my son because I just, I told my wife to buy this for him, but they, they have this package of like die cast little one inch X-Men characters. And, you know, they're mm-hmm. sitting in the boys toy section. And the toy market, I, I've, I've done some study. I've done some stuff on it. The toy market is very, you know, binary. These are boys' toys. These are girls' oh, toys. Oh, yeah. It, well, that's what killed Tower Prep. Yeah. So I will never forgive the toy market, even though I am a toy collector. Yeah, that that's a whole other thing. But what was... That's a whole different podcast. <laughs> yes. But what was so interesting about it is, you know, this, it's this X-Men pack. It's got 20 characters. They're 20 little figurines. Please, you're about to say. Oh, I, I don't know what I'm about to say. I'm about to say there were 11 female characters and nine male really? characters. And I was like, oh, that makes me so happy. Now, to be fair, two of them were Jean, but still. That makes me unhappy. <laughs> there was also an Emma, and it's one of the few characters that my two-year-old knows by name out of the X-Men, which is a... Just you are doing a great thing. job as a parent. <laughs> I, I'm doing my best to just imprint on him all the things that are important. But I, I think that right there speaks to something that, you know, not just X-Men, but the marketable X-Men, the ones that you want to make toys of. Mm-hmm. It's 
there were more there were more female characters than male characters. That says something about how X-Men has been able to reach a much more diverse and broader market than, you know, some of the other franchises have. And it's not perfect and there's still plenty of things that it can be that can be done better. But Oh yeah, but yeah. X-Men X-Men sustains on the backs of its female characters. That's that's always been the case. Absolutely. Um, Pretty much since all new, I I will not make that argument on Jean's behalf. I'm so sorry, Jean, but no. All new Jean was very immature. <laughs> that it, I am it's, not, a, it's a it's a I complex never, thing. I have never been a fan of Jean Grey, but it's for reasons that are not Jean's fault, and so I try to recognize that. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of a character that um, also I think is another great example of representation um, in terms of finding yourself on a, you know, a sexuality spectrum. Um, you get a chance to play around with mystique I in do. the near future. Um, can you, I, I, you know, without any spoilers, I don't think we're really looking for any of that, but um, what can you tell us about what you're doing with her in X-Men black? Okay. Well, I said this in front of, uh, in front of CB Sabalski and he was not mad. So I think I'm okay <laughs> to say it again. Um, are you familiar with a show called Leverage? Yeah. I know it by reputation. Yeah. So it is a it is a show about thieves doing thief things. Mm-hmm. Um, and they are some of the best in the world at what they do. They're all kind of the Wolverines of crime. Um, as far as I am concerned, the best way to write Raven Darkholm is as an evil Sophie Devereaux from Leverage. Um, uh... She is the ultimate grifter. She is the one who walks in with nothing and walks out with your wallet, the key to your house, and somehow mysteriously permission to kill everyone you've ever loved. And (laughs) people think of that. It's really easy to look at Mystique's power set and think of it as a lazy person's power set. You know, she can turn into anyone, so she doesn't need to work. She she just does. Uh, But that's not going to make you a world-class grifter. That's mm-hmm. not going to make you Raven Darkhold. That's going to make someone who has basic shapeshifter powers. Oh, that's nice, darling. Don't you think you're fancy today? Um, so <laughs> I approached the one-shot, because it is only a one-shot, um, so you have to kind of have a, a one-and-done mentality to story. I approached the one-shot as, let's look at what Raven does on functionally a training day. You know, how how does she make sure that she stays the very best in the world at her specific kind of grift? And how much work is she going to put into being able to do a grift that can't be spoiled by someone going, that's not right. My mother would never say that. You know, we don't see her get caught out on those little details hmm. because she actually pays attention to them. I love that idea. What a, so, what a cool take on the character. You know, I also like that since it's confirmed she'll never get Destiny back at this yes. point, you can just treat her as I will let the world burn. Yeah. And that makes me Destiny. <laughs> Which is simultaneously exciting and sad. It is. It is. If she were a real person, I would feel like a very bad person for saying those sorts of things. But um, fortunately, also, Mystique's not, not like a good I'm... person. End of the day, she's very mean. <laughs> she's, no, she's, she's not, not nice. Not. Now, you're, you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> but no, you're doing this. Uh, you're doing this uh, one shot with your uh, X Men Gold Annual uh, artist Marco Falia. Is it is it easier to you know start mm-hmm. to build a rapport with you know an artist at this point? Is it nice to be jumping back with someone that you've already uh, 
had some experience with? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because, you know, the, the big concern a lot of artists have uh, when novelists are coming to the party, and I, I am not blaming any artist for having this concern about me or any other novelist. Please do not take this as me criticizing them. Um, but the biggest concern that artists have when you say, hey, you're going to do a comic for this novelist is, oh, dear God, how precious are they going to be <laughs> about their magical words? You know, my entire life is my words. That is how I pay my bills. So uh, when when they first asked Marco if he would do the annual for me, um, he was very kind. But his response to my editor was pretty much, "Yeah, how precious is she? Like, wow, is she gonna get is she gonna get pissed if I draw something not exactly like she described it?" And, and my editor uh, Kathleen Wisniewski was like, "I'm I don't think she's super precious." Honestly, I'm pretty sure that we could tell her that she was finger painting the issue herself and she'd be cool with that. <laughs> uh, but we'll double check. And, and I was like, no, I'm, I'm not. I'm not precious. I have actually done this before. Um, but so mm -hmm. I have I didn't have to do that again, which was very nice. Just be like, no, 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 no. You're the artist. I, I will tell you if something matters. And it does. Um, and, and it's good. It's good. My, I think my last question really, and it's something you had brought up earlier. You said your opinion on Emma Frost is, you know, right compared to anyone else's. Yes, that is correct. Except for Leah Williams. I, I, we do not 100% <laughs> agree, but Leah is great. And I like her take on Emma. Le we trust Leah's Leah. a friend of the show. <laughs> she is fantastic. I, yeah. It, when I found out she was the one that had been tapped to do Emma for X-Men Black, I was like, okay, like literally anyone else in the world, I would be having a tiny, discreet, only in my home temper tantrum right now. <laughs> and uh, no, it's Leah. We're fine. <laughs> no, that that's good. That's good. She's great. Guys, if you aren't following Leah on uh, Twitter, go follow Leah on Twitter. She is posting very good X-Men content. But, yes. at you know, Doug, moving back from that, What's what what is your take on Emma Frost? I'm very interested. Emma Frost is first and foremost an educator. She is here for the kids. You know, Emma is is an interesting case because people will sometimes point to her and go, "Oh, look, you know, here's justification for wanting to put this new superhero in in a bikini." Because mm -hmm. clearly it's empowerment. It's it's not empowerment. It's a lot of people trying to make up justifications for a fictional person. Uh, but Emma, because of the background she's been given, is one of the few where it really does fly. And that is people always underestimated me because I looked like this and looking like this was useful. Uh, so I kept it going. Um, but if you look at the, the way she has most consistently been written, hero, villain, it doesn't matter. When she's in the hands of someone who has not decided that she's an evil cow, she is an educator. She's not about Xavier's dream. She's not about Magneto's dream. She is about equipping mutant children to have the best possible chances of survival in a world that, yes, hates and fears them. Um, part, of, part of where you can see this really well-centered is the first Gen X run where she was headmistress along mm. with Banshee mm -hmm. because yeah. she still looked like Emma Frost. She didn't suddenly turn into Molly frickin' Weasley. You know, she's not showing up in home-knit <laughs> jumpers. But she also put on a little more clothing because she was working with teenagers. She was working with kids for Emma. It's completely in character for her to modify the way that she dresses and behaves based on who her audience of the moment is. And I feel like we miss that sometimes because, Oh, she's the X-Man where it's okay for her to be sexy. She's the X-Man who 
started this relationship with Scott knowing he was married. Yet she's the X-Man who put on a pantsuit so that Jono wouldn't be uncomfortable. <laughs> um, and, you know, one of the places where Leah and I absolutely agree, so I'm going to quote her a little bit because she did put it very well very recently, is being a telepath in a non-telepathic society, and this is the thing I've gone into in my novels, in part as a long, quiet defense of Emma Frost, um, but being a telepath in a non-telepathic society is like literally living in the YouTube comments section. Like, think about the things that people will say to women out loud with the hole in their faces that makes sounds, and then think about what Emma is living with every minute of every day. Hmm. Does she change herself completely so that she doesn't have to listen to these horrible men thinking these horrible things about her body because they feel safe? Or does she continue to be Emma Frost because she's Emma Frost and screw you? And then she meets Scott. And Scott is the Bob Ross painting video of men. <laughs> Just see <laughs> Okay, that's me and not Leah, so I'm sorry, Leah. That needs to go on a t-shirt. <laughs> he is, he's soothing. He's not going to look at Emma and think of, oh, the things I could do to that body. He's going to look at Emma and go, oh, gosh, honey, are you cold? <laughs> and so, yeah, you know, her getting between him and Jean was kind of, was, was crappy. I'm not going to defend her on that. Uh, but it takes two to tango. And I think it is very telling that Emma continues to get flagged as a homewrecker, whereas Scott was just misled. No, Scott was not just misled. Scott came to that party with his eyes open and his pants down. And oh, yeah. he does not exactly have the best track record to be. Uh... He really doesn't. <laughs> I love him. He's my favorite character in all of fiction, but like he's a flawed dude. That's why he's interesting. I love Scott. And I think that Scott and Emma force each, like to make Scott and Emma interesting, they force each other to be better. And so they force the writers who are working with them to try harder. It is so mm. easy at this point to sell an ex audience on, and I'm going to write Scott and Jean and they're happy. Like everyone has been primed for that since they were the age I was when I saw Gwen Stacy go off that bridge. But getting people to accept, no, actually, Scott and Emma are a better long-term couple. I think Matt Fraction really put it best when he said that Jean was the love of Scott's youth, but Emma is the love of his life. Yes, ab absolutely. 100% agree. Like, perfect. Now, as a corollary to all of that, best Emma Frost costume, I want to hear everyone's opinions because I think we're going to think the same thing, but I want to be clear on this one. Here's the thing, like, what is our definition of best? I love, I, I genuinely love her Generation X pantsuit. Yes. Because that is Emma being an educator. I also kind of love that every time she knows the Avengers are coming to town, she pulls out the $500 lingerie. <laughs> but, and, and I, I'm going to say something that sounds kind of like an accusation of sexism, and maybe it is. I don't really know. Um, but I'm hopped up on cold meds, so let's go. <laughs> a lot of Emma's costumes, really, you can clearly tell, were drawn by people that have never worn those things. I think that's a very that's fair, fair assessment. <laughs> as, as someone who hasn't, I, I don't think they work like that. No. And it's like, look, between the telepathy, which one assumes can let her shut off some of her own pain sensors, and now being able to turn into living organic diamond... 
I am totally down for Emma Frost goes into combat wearing something so uncomfortable that it is an active plus five intimidation check against female supervillains. <laughs> like I am, I am with you there. But some of the stuff she gets drawn wearing, like look at the ghost boxes storyline. Mm. Oh God, it's so cheap. I have lingerie more expensive than that and I do not have her budget. <laughs> and so it, it hurts me. It hurts me in my special cares about fashion a little bit place. Oh, it hurts me. Like I love the um, quietly, but I also know how much fabric tape it would take to keep the quietly on the body. Yeah. And that just doesn't I can't ex- oh, I, I love Frank quietly. Oh. I can't accept that costume. It doesn't it doesn't grow. You could glue me. it on. You could glue it on. I've seen people do it. You could, but why but would you, you want not- to? Why would you want to? And you can't wear it into combat. Yeah. Like I, I am I all that. in one. I'm 100% in favor of super sexy Emma Frost here to eat your heart out. But I just need her clothes to look like a human being could actually wear them. Right. Ad, Adam. So your favorite costume. Adam, yours. Go. I'm a big fan of any time that Chris Bacallo draws oh, Emma yeah. Frost. Um, so I'm going to heartily agree with, uh, the, the early Gen X outfit. Um, I do like the Bacallo design for uncanny, if only because it's black. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I do like that. My only issue with that is that often when it's drawn, because it has the open panel in the front, it often creates a very, very strange uniboob type thing going on there. Um, which is a little strange, like the physics of it don't always work, but yeah. I do appreciate the, um, I really like the, the shoulder pads that have the red X those are, on them. Those are um, those yeah. Are like choice. there's, there's really cool design elements there that are very much uh, that whole Bachalo steampunk type thing uh, that it's very punk. So I, I got, I might go with that one. Yeah. What do you I mean, mine, mine is definitely that generation X uh, Bachalo uh, look. Cause it's, you know, it's still the white queen. It's still got a corset on it, but it's a lot more, a bit more practical, a bit more stylish. Honestly, mm-hmm. it it's just a good look. Like going back to those little yeah. toys, there's a reason the Emma Frost toy is just she's in that costume, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's and like Emma should Emma should be both a nightmare and a gift for any artist who gets to draw her. Mm-hmm. Because you should literally be playing on the fact that she has such a recognizable, strong color palette normally. Um, it would it would require going back to the white exclusively just to have that recognizability. But she's kind of like Dazzler. You shouldn't see her in the same clothing, mm-hmm. ever. You should literally have the Emma Frost yard sale where she's like, well, darling, that fabric will take dye. And she's just chucking out everything that she's already worn in public once <laughs> because she has an image to maintain. Yeah, it's a very good point. Now, while I could talk about Emma Frost fashion all night, we got a couple of Twitter questions as we uh, get, you know, till towards the end of our time here that I do want to do want to hit up. Okay. So this first one comes to us from at Strictly Worse on Twitter, uh, our friend Chris, who says Mystique has the fun ability to basically be at any event, but which historical push person should actually be Mystique? Hmm. Like, just have always been Mystique? I assume it would be her in disguise, yes. It would be a, you know, Agent Raven Darkholm or some of her other personas who I am not thinking about right now because I can't remember them. Right. So so that person did not actually exist 
They were just Mystique the whole time. Yes. Yep. Do you remember when Irene was born? No. I, I the don't. Past, I mean, she, she was she was in her she was she was near retirement age by the time that you know she she died. So. So okay, then I, my timelines are probably terrible, but this would be a hilarious AU. It's X Men. Our timeline's um, going to make sense. Sometimes they might, <laughs> maybe for five minutes. Um, but that's we also have the shifting the shifting scale of comics. So I'm going to say that at one point this would have worked out, and that uh, Dorothy Parker, the Ooh. poet, was Mystique all along, um, because just imagine Dorothy Parker and a young Irene having decided that they are going to do 20 years of nothing but being dissolute bad influences on the youth and <laughs> writing poetry. That's good. Oh, I love that. It would make me very happy. That, that that's a that's a good out of the box answer. Uh, our our other question like comes to us from uh, Asimov underscore fangirl on Twitter, who asks, "Hi everyone," which isn't really a question. That's more of a declarative, but that's fine. If you could hang out with one X Men or X Men villain for one day, who would you choose? Emma. <laughs> like. She again, psychic powers, horrifically offended by people not looking their best, and really into educating. It would be like being on Queer Eye, but instead of Queer Eye for the straight guy, it would be like Diamond Gal for the queer pal. And she'd just take me around, and people would give me stuff all day. And by the end of it, I would actually know how to do my hair. So I think that's a good pitch. Yeah, like it would be so good uh, for me. It would be kind of bad for all the store owners who right, couldn't figure out why right. all their stuff got stolen. Um, but that's why I'm hanging with a villain for the day and not a See, hero. I think I, I would be too intimidated hanging out with Emma. Like she would just scare me a little bit for, for good reasons. She's, she's not a, uh, she's not a soft person. Uh, no, but I also think that if actual Emma Frost just like wandered in, hello, darling, here I am. I'm Emma Frost. I'd think I was having some kind of break. <laughs> um, and thus the intimidation factor would not so much be there because it's like, sup, Emma, you're a figment of my imagination. Let's get pedicures. That's good. I think I think for I me it would be That's Nightcrawler, good. just because I think he would just be like a fun guy to, you know, hang out with for a day. He would he would not make it mm. boring, which I think would be good. No. No, he'd be he'd be very into finding some activity that you're not really into doing, but you get there and you get started and you find out that you really enjoyed it. That is true. That's I a mean, good if answer. I could add a I like second, that. because X-Men tend to travel in packs, um, I just add Scott and then I could put Scott and Emma through the absolute trauma uh, for Emma, at least of flying Southwest <laughs> air um, because that would horrify her. And we would go and surprise Jay in New York because I think if I showed up on his porch with actual Scott Summers, I could find out what he looks like. I feel like that would be true. Oh I feel God. like that would be very what true. Uh, Jay, of course, <laughs> if you are listening to our podcast, then you should probably know about the other good, you know, very good explain the X-Men podcast that Jake uh, co-hosts. Uh, Adam, did you have an answer for uh, this one? Oh, it would be Warlock for sure. I want to hang out with Warlock all day and Ooh. I want to go and on adventures the with him comes at night <laughs> yeah i don't know i just i i want to like 
play Doug Ramsey with uh, with Warlock all day. That'd be fun. <laughs> Your dreams are valid, but please don't bring the techno organic virus into our universe because we yes. kind of lack ways to stop it from consuming all this flesh. Is, this is very true. That's true. That's true. Like, again, your dreams are totes valid, but maybe dream a little less apocalyptically. <laughs> Containable dreams. Containable dreams. Right. Dreams that don't activate a branch of government. <laughs> Sean, and thank you so much for uh, coming on here. Thank you for having me. No problem. Now, if uh, people want to, uh, you know, check out your stuff, uh, where can they uh, where can they find you and all of your things? Uh, well, I spend most of my social media time on Twitter, which is an unrelenting fire hose, so I will not see 80% of what's tweeted at me, uh, but it does come with a bonus dose of many, many cat pictures. So many Ooh. cat pictures. I have uh, I have two Maine Coons and the single stupidest orange and white cat in the universe. Uh, she is just not very bright, and if she didn't live <laughs> with us, we're pretty sure coyotes would get her. Um, so that's Seanan McGuire uh, at Twitter. Um, you can find out where I'm going to be from my website, which is seananmcguire.com. I'm very consistent in my branding, but I have to be because no one can spell my name. Um, <laughs> I have no illusions. I got a little, like, messed up in the name department. Um, I am on Tumblr as Seanan McGuire, uh, but that is less of a professional space and more of a Seanan really likes posting pictures of snakes space. So probably don't go there if you're hoping to see me Ooh. being a shiny, fancy professional person. <laughs> uh, my website is seananmcguire.com. There's a theme. If you can find it, you win nothing. Uh, my blog, my website is seananmcguire.com. I do have an appearances list there, which is updated pretty much weekly. Uh, so if you were hoping to actually find me in person without tracking down my house, showing up in my front yard and getting the hose turned on you. Um, that would be the place to go to do it. Uh, I do a lot of conventions. I travel a lot. I grumble about traveling a lot. I love my cats. I want to write more X-Men. Please buy my X-Men so they will let me continue to write X-Men because I promise you I would mess it up if they ever gave me anything. But right now I want X-Factor. Let's <laughs> pause a moment and consider how horrifying that would be and go out and put X-Men Black on your pull list. Absolutely, absolutely. I I know it is uh, that whole series. It's it's got a superstar group of creators that I think about half of them at this point have appeared on this show, as far as the writers are concerned. So if you dun, dun, dun. if you like people who have been on here, go pull X Men Black. It's very exciting. Going to be good. Now, Adam, where can uh where can people find you on the internet? Guys, if you uh, want to follow me on Twitter, it's at Arthur Stacy. Um, you guys can still get copies of the search for Bish and Jubes at adamrec.bigcartel.com. And I promise I'm working real hard on Bish and Jubes issue number four. I'm hoping to start putting those pages out by the fall. And where can they find you, Zach? Everyone can find me and everything about this show at XavierFiles.com. That is where you can find articles about X-Men, all these podcast things, uh, news, and what's the other stuff I have on there? Just stuff. Guys, look, if you've been listening to this podcast for any amount of time, you know what that website is. Go there, <laughs> do the things. Or don't. I'm not your dad. Uh you can also go uh, follow me on Twitter at Xavier Files, where I post panels of whatever X-Men comics I'm reading with my very bad commentary on it. Right now, it's going through cable, and it's soon going to be through 75 
freaking issues of X-Man that I have been <laughs> cursed you with. you have a nice time? I think, though, once I'm done with them, I can, I can transfer the curse to someone else. And then they Ooh. have to live with 75 issues of X-Man. You're mean. I like you. Look, I... <laughs> I once told people that if I decide to start reading X-Men, they need to view this as a cry for help and say, hey, Zach, what's what's going on? Are you, you doing okay, man? Crying for help now. But <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, it's getting close. Now, guys, everything about this show is supported by the lovely folks on Patreon.com. Uh, if you go over to Patreon.com slash Xavier Files and you toss in, uh, say, $2, which is half the price of a comic book a month, then you can get an entire episode of this show dedicated to a story of your choice. Just like next week, how we have a whole episode around a random issue of uncanny X-Men that is, I had read four times and I couldn't tell you anything that happened in it by reputation. So (laughs) there's a lot of freedom force in that. You remember those guys. Uh, Yeah. It's, it's quite it's it's quite a uh, adventure. So we'll uh, we'll be doing that next week. Uh, Shannon, once again, thank you so much for being on. It has been a utter delight. Yay! I'm a delight. Have a nice evening, guys. Till next time. This has been Bow the Atom. We hope you survived the experience. <laughs>